Hello everybody and welcome to the third episode of Why It Works. My name is Niv Musan and with me is Ethan Wolf and we're happy to be talking about life with you guys again. So we're exploring ideas from quantum physics, mechanics, math, science, philosophies, emotions, connections we have. You know, we're bridging all these different gaps between things we like to see as ourselves and things we like to see as the world itself. Connecting why we are and how we are to what everything really is. And we're very curious people, so we're just here exploring with you guys. And Ethan is gonna teach us a new topic today. So let's talk about what we've done in the past episode and take it from there. All right, so yeah, uh, in our last episode, we talked about the ideas of quantum entanglement, what it means for two particles to be entangled together, or actually it can be even many particles that are entangled together. We talked about these connections between quantum computers in our first episode, how this, you know, how these ideas of quantum entanglement even allow for quantum computers to work. And then we actually bridge the gap between uh, the very emotions and connections we make with others to possibly the ideas of physics itself, but more touching on the ideas of biochemical natures that our brains, as well as ourselves, really work on. So today we're going to be bridging another gap from quantum entanglement to the ideas of quantum electrodynamics. Now, quantum electrodynamics is a field, or is the field, in which we explain how light, how photons, interact with matter. Matter can range from electrons, uh, protons, neutrons, anything that pretty much builds up the entire uh, fundamental structure of matter itself, i.e. atoms. So that's the definition of electrodynamics or quantum electrodynamics? Quantum electrodynamics. So let's, t- let's take it back. What is electrodynamics for the non-scientists who listen to us? Of course. So Electrodynamics, or what we, we would refer to as classical electrodynamics, is essentially the theories that were proposed by James Maxwell in the 1800s. Now, what these theories state is how electric fields and magnetic fields pretty much uh, combine together to create the spectrum of light that we all experience. In other words, visible light, X-rays, gamma rays, like Bruce Banner, uh, microwaves, pretty much all of these different uh, electromagnetic waves. That's pretty much what electrodynamics or classical electrodynamics describes. It describes how light is interacting in different ways, as well as how electric and magnetic fields interact together to create pretty much all of uh, the electric um, interactions that we that we know and we experience. In other words, like charges interacting together, uh, like a like an electron and electron, as we were discussing in our last episode, how they have negative charges, so they repel each other. How a positive, like let's say a proton and electron would, uh, you know, come together and attract each other. These are pretty much the principles that are described by the theory of classical electrodynamics. So before the 1800s, we, as humankind, we didn't have any clue in regarding of how to use light or waves that has to do with uh, uh, light energy, like microwaves and uh, x-rays and all that, that 
that's very fundamental for us nowadays for most of our technologies you know we we built on it even when they turned on the AC right that's built on electrodynamics uh, principle yeah you're um for let's say an AC you're literally sending an infrared signal so an infrared is another spectrum of light from the remote to the AC which has a receptor our circuit board that recepts and takes in the signal and that uh, flicks a switch which sends an electrical pulse which turns on your AC so uh, it's great that you brought that up prior to these theories of electrodynamics we actually really didn't understand how electricity would even work you know we really didn't even understand how how light essentially worked in general we had the ideas that visible light existed because we could see it you know we saw blue we saw red but Prior to actually doing experiments and messing with the actual structure of light, we had no idea that there was even more uh, types of light out there. In other words, like I was saying earlier, gamma rays, microwaves, infrared, um, you know, all these different waves were unknown to us. So we were only exposed to the ones that our human eye could perceive, but there's a larger spectrum of light waves that... Now we, or in the 1800s, we figured out how to access and use to our benefit. And that takes me to a couple questions. One question is, maybe the spectrum is larger than what we know of and can we still, or do we still find new areas in the spectrum? First question. Second one was, you talked about the colors blue and red and orange. What's the difference in actuality, in like physics uh, definitions between the colors because our eye just perceives this but can you define the different colors yeah so great questions you ask so the first one in terms of is there other types of light that exist in our universe the simple answer to that is no um well with quantum electrodynamics even with classical electrodynamics it fully described the entire electromagnetic spectrum so what that means is that when the or basically the entire electromagnetic spectrum itself is all possibilities of light that said there does not exist any other type of light in our universe now to your second question what's the difference between all these different types of light you know sure visible light you know we have the different colors blue red green roy g bib for that matter um and then we have infrared, microwaves, x-rays, gamma rays. And so the difference between them is the frequency and the wavelength of each photon. Can you describe frequency and wavelength? Sure, yeah. So wavelength, uh, it honestly kind of exactly what the word says. Uh, the, the length of the wave, because as we know, light travels in both waves and particles. This is actually the, one of the major discoveries of quantum mechanics. It was one of the milestones of quantum mechanics as well. Uh, funny tidbit, Einstein was the first one to discover this. So uh, basically the mathematical description is that the wavelength is from the crest or the top of the wave measurement to the next wave. So think about it like a, think about it like the ocean. The ocean it waves, you have one wave, you have two waves, and you know, you can imagine them as if 
if you guys seen the movie Interstellar, you can kind of get a big big picture of how uh, two waves they're separated, and that's actually another uh, mathematical description is a wavelength. The wave or the length of the wave differs from the first wave to the second wave. So from the first maximum of the one wave to the maximum of the second wave. That's exactly right. Okay, and what what's the definition of frequency? Now, frequency is how often it occurs. So like, like BPM in music? Um, yeah, actually, that's a great way to think about it. So BPM is beats per minute. It's uh, whether the music sounds like... Or faster, as in a higher BPM would be like... That's for the EDM guys out there and girls, you know? <laughs> Party on, everyone. Anyway, so... Basically, that's actually exactly right. It's how often or how quickly these waves are uh, are hitting a certain point. Now, uh, there's actually a mathematical correlation between the wavelength and the frequency. Uh, the correlation is, if I believe or if I recall correctly, uh, the frequency is equal to one over the wavelength. Uh, basically, this is how we correlate these two different uh, two different descriptions or two different characteristics of a wave. Uh, and it's not just for light, um, it's for music, because as we all know, frequency is also used for music, like you just said, beats per minute. Um, it's also used for describing ocean or uh, water waves for that matter, water characteristics for that for that idea. it's uh, it's used for many different, many different facets of nature. But in terms of electrodynamics, it's how we describe the differences in light. The reason because of this is uh, due to the fact that if you had any uh, larger of a wavelength or a frequency or on vice versa, any smaller of a wavelength or frequency, you would actually cause um, the mathematics to uh, basically break down. You would cause the physics itself, the physical equations that describe this entire theory and these entire effects of the world around us to uh, not work anymore. Like dividing uh, into zero? Uh, either divide, dividing by zero or dividing by infinity. You either get zero or you get an in. So then that's why in the physics realm you decided, not you personally, uh, that it doesn't work and that's the limit because the maths don't support any uh, higher wavelength or lower than the two max point. That's exactly right. So I want to I wanna distinguish one question uh, referring to what I asked before. The difference between the color red and the color blue would be a different wavelength or a different frequency? Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So you have the visible spectrum which as I, again, we, we recognize as uh, the primary color or the main colors, Roy Z Viv, red, orange, green, blah, 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 everywhere. Uh, a rainbow, if you will. So these colors differ by frequency and wavelength. And basically the longer wavelengths and thus shorter frequency are characteristics of red light and the shorter wavelengths and frequency or shorter wavelength and larger frequency is a characteristic of blue light. Now in between is basically the other colors that exist. So your maxima and minima for a, a visible light is red and blue. 
Uh, this actually correlates to a really cool principle uh, described by Einstein's relativity, where light that has been traveling for a very long time becomes red shifted. Now, what red shifted mean is, means is that light that is coming in from a very, very distant part of the universe to us is going to, or the visible light for that matter, is going to appear red. That's because it's been traveling for such a long time, so its wavelength is stretched out, and thus the energy that, or the frequency, is, uh, is less. And so the energy that it has is going to be less as well because it's been traveling for so long. So meaning if I have a really, really large paper that's painted blue and I look at it from the other side of the universe, I'm going to see it red because while it travels all this distance, the wavelength gets stretched and then that changes the frequency and the visible light is going to be red to my eyes. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, basically, it's just it's a principle that's a consequence of uh, relativity. The idea that relative to when the light started, when it uh, originated, to when it reached us, it had to travel for a long time and not only uh, travel for a long time, but also become uh, bent as well as uh, energy depleted from it through this bending of gravity itself. That leads into another principle called gravitational lensing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, hold on a second with the gravitational lensing. Uh, I want to I wanna summarize this point. What we describe now is the, the beginning of electrodynamics, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, what we've talked about so far is basically the, con uh, the concepts that are described by classical electrodynamics. Uh, what we want to get to, though, is quantum electrodynamics, and we're kind of taking a, a little detour into the ideas of general relativity, but uh, due to the fact that my field is quantum gravity, I kind of, uh, it's, it's just a passion of mine, so it's hard not to get uh, deterred by Einstein's greatness, as well as the ideas that we're currently walking to now or uh, currently trying to create, which is the ideas that uh, quantum mechanics also describes how gravity works. But that'll be for a later episode. We'll actually really dive into these concepts and so why why we even think that gravity uh, or why we even think that Einstein's gravity is not exactly correct, but an amazing approximation. Okay, so we we've touched electrodynamics, which is the field that covers how we assess light and how light works in this world. Uh, mathematically, physically, and how we can get uses of it, right? Did they get it correct? Yeah, exactly. As well as the uh, applications of electro uh, electricity or electromagnetism, uh, the ways in which charged particles interact with the world around us. So that's basically uh, what is encompassed by classical electrodynamics. It's uh, how charged particles interact with each other, how they basically interact with light itself, and how light is interact or how light works as well as how it interacts with the universe around us. So now that we define electrodynamics, classical electrodynamics, what's the what the leap towards quantum electrodynamics? What's the difference then? Yeah. So now you guys might be asking yourselves, what is the point of turning it from classical to quantum? 
Now, the main point is because we, we know that our universe is quantized. What that means is that there are uh, little pieces or little bits of information that are uh, put into neat little packets or neat little spaces, if you will. And these, uh, these pieces of information interact with the world around us. Now, the big thing about quantum is that we're describing the most fundamental of particles in our universe with quantum mechanics, or in this case, quantum electrodynamics. So what, we're, what I was stating earlier about Einstein being the first one to discover that light moves as both, both a wave and a particle, in other words, uh, light is composed of light waves or electromagnetic waves, and photons. Photons are these little packets of information which carry uh, the very essence of light itself, if, you, if you'd like. So the leap now from classical to quantum is that rather than in classical electrodynamics where uh, light was simply just a wave, now we have quantum electrodynamics where light is both a wave and a particle. That is really, really important. So in classical electrodynamics, it was only a wave. There was no, no knowledge of the particle bit of it. Not at all. Um, it actually wasn't until uh, approximately the 1920s or, um, in which Einstein, uh, Einstein posited this theory that when photons hit a conducting surface, it actually causes uh, electrons to take in the energy of the photon and start, uh, start basically creating an electrical current or start moving. This was one of the, the cornerstones of quantum electrodynamics. It was that in order for electrons to even take in this energy, photons must have been, or light must be composed of particles that comes into the conducting plate, hits the electrons, and when it hits the electron, it transfers this information or transfers this energy from the photon to the electron. And then what actually, uh, what bounces off the conductor is uh, known as thermal radiation, or in other words, heat. Depending on the uh, reflective or the reflectability of the metal itself, uh, a lower energy photon would also be um, reflected off of the surface. So it basically showed that photons are, or light is composed of particles as well, which was, again, important. So now we have this idea that, yes, Classical electrodynamics told us that light exists. Um, it interacts with the world around us, but it didn't tell us how light could interact with electric or charged particles or matter for that matter. <laughs> for that matter. Maybe that's the name of the next podcast. Uh, maybe, honestly. Um, but yeah, so this was huge because now we're able to show that by basically sending signals of light from one place to another, you can cause particles, charged particles, like electrons, to start moving. That was revolutionary. And that happened in the 1920s? Happened in the 1920s, yeah. So what applications do we have for it? Because for me, it's still tough to grasp the, the breakthrough. It sounds fascinating, uh, but theoretically, but are there any applications to life that we've used? This knowledge of uh, photons that carry out this energy and can... Uh, move electrons. So uh, you guys can't tell, but uh, I have a huge grin on my face just because uh, 
everyone experiences what the applications are. The reason why I say this is because all of the technology that exists today, the AC, our computers, our phones, hell, even uh, little uh, LED light strips, every single piece of electro, uh, electronic technology we have today only exists because we understand or we created this theory of quantum electrodynamics. It's, uh, it was revolutionary. How come? How does it come to an application? Like, Yeah, so um, I'll actually, let me bring it a step back before I talk about the applications. So classical electrodynamics, the applications, why that field was so revolutionary of the time is because we were able to understand that if you move energy in a certain way, if you move charged particles in a certain way, you can heat up certain surfaces or certain metals. That actually was the basis of, of uh, well, <laughs> Ben Franklin's uh, light bulb or any light bulb for that matter afterwards. Wait, are you, are you teaching me now how light bulbs work? Yeah. Uh, the only reason they work is because of classical electrodynamics. Take me, take me throughout the full tube, please. Oh, man. Okay. So um, basically the way that classical electrodynamics works or the applications of it is that we are understanding how charged particles are moving. We're understanding how electrons are moving. So if you basically uh, create an electrical circuit, one where you have a difference in voltage, that, that's basically what a battery is. Um, the top of the battery is charged particles, positive ions. The bottom is negative ion, or not negative ions, but negatively charged. You never, never, never connect a battery from the top to the bottom. Uh, that will create a fire or an explosion for that matter. Um, that's why we always add things called resistors. Um, in this case, a light bulb can be considered a resistor. The reason why is because now what's happening is that you're sending these electrons through, let's say, a wire or a piece of metal, and uh, inside of a light bulb or inside of classical light bulbs or old light bulbs for that matter, um, you add a piece of tungsten that spires. What's that? What's that? Uh, tungsten. It's uh, it's just a metal. It's a type of metal. It's just like tin or aluminum, but it can... Uh, the cool thing about tungsten is that it has a high heat resistance, so it can be heated to very high uh, temperatures without degrading. So yeah, basically... When you uh, send this electrical current through the tungsten, it's wrapped in a coil. Uh, the coil, it's just more of a geometric uh, type of way in order for heat to be brought into one, or uh, yeah, for thermal energy to be brought into one place more efficiently. Uh, it goes through the, throughout the spiral, and it goes through the end, and it connects back to the end or the negative side of the battery. What happens now is because of the way that this is working, uh, the tungsten is heating up and it's becoming red hot. And that's what a light bulb is. It's just a piece of metal that's heating up and becoming red hot. So the metal that heats up function as the buffering zone between the charged ions to the negatively charged ions and, and it just buffers there and it heats it up because the photons heat the metal. And that's what we see as light? Yeah, um, that's exactly right. So, sorry guys, I just want to uh, I just want to make a quick interjection. I don't know why I said Ben Franklin. Um, I meant Thomas Edison. <laughs> that, was a, that was a careless mistake. But anyway, um, 
so yeah, basically it's acting as the buffer. Uh, but I do want to say that this is not a per that's not a perfect system. If you don't have any real resistor, um, something that creates resistance, uh, a resistor is simply a, a little component that's made of an insulating material. And so, uh, if you were to just connect the light bulb from the battery or yeah, from the battery to the light bulb and the light bulb back to the battery, odds are it would burn out and explode pretty quickly. But you would have a light bulb working for a little bit until, you know, glass explodes everywhere. But, you know, prior to that, you see you would have a good light bulb. Um, but that's why we add resistors to electrical components. It's to make sure that uh, not too much energy is being pushed through the system so that uh, certain things don't burn out or short circuit for that matter. Um, but that's that's a that's a conversation for maybe another episode when we talk about circuit analytics and basically uh, how circuits work, basically how all of our technology works. Um, that'll be a little bit more of an in-depth discussion into inductors, capacitors, more about resistors, uh, circuit boards. So that's voltage and uh, currents and uh, yeah, voltage current resistance. These connections or these equations are actually also described by the theory of classical electrodynamics. So, so in order for the light bulb to be created, we had to get the grasp of quantum electrodynamics. For the light bulb to be created, we had to get a grasp of classical electrodynamics. However, uh, the first light bulbs were created prior to uh, the full development of the classical electrodynamic theory. As it, or electromagnetic theory as described by James Waxwell. But in the early 1800s or uh, around the end of the 1700s, these were also basic um, equations that could be easily described just because they're, they're very simplistic. Um, for instance, uh, voltage is simply equal to the current divided by the resistance of the circuit. Current is just equal to the voltage times the resistance. Oh. You play around with it in the equation simplistic so so what's so what are the uses of the quantum uh, quantum electrodynamics because I, I understood the light bulb uh, uh, scenario what about led lights do they need a quantum uh, electrodynamics theory understanding or do they work on the same basics of uh, classical electrodynamics um that is actually a great question i um so the way that LEDs work is that you have a tiny little circuit board that's connected to a uh, uh, it's connected to a, a little light that has uh, that can create different colors, um, and this circuit board is then connected through a uh, this electrical system like little wires, little fibers, and whatnot. Um, so in order for this idea to work, because it also works in in the reverse way. If you have elect, uh, electrons flowing in one way, you can produce light as a response. Um, you just have to increase the energy that you're putting through depending on the type of light. So for LEDs and all this, we had to have a, a deeper understanding of, of how, uh, how light interacts with electrons and how electrons interact with light. That's, that was only really possible when we started to understand the field of quantum electrodynamics. The fact that uh, that light is actually composed of these photons and energy can be transferred from one to the other. Um, so 
that's one example. And now let's scale up this idea, these uh, ideas of circuit boards. Um, the same idea works for your computers. Uh, basically, you're sending electrical signals through this circuit board. And in response, one of the uh, one of the effects or one of the ways in which uh, these circuit boards work or a computer works is that it's then connected to uh, an array of LED modules as well or uh, light circuits. And basically, that's how it how it's how you have uh, your entire screen. It's that all of these electrons are interacting in a certain way that tell each uh, pixel to light up a certain color based on the amount of energy each pixel is receiving. Um, so that's one one way in which uh, quantized light interacts with electrons or charged particles. Another way is also when we were talking about earlier and how your uh, your AC works is that you're sending an electromagnetic signal, infrared light on your remote to the AC. It takes in this uh, this this light. It's a certain amount of energy. This certain amount of energy, it's called threshold energy. It's the necessary amount of energy that it needs to uh, tell the circuit to flip on or to send that electrical pulse, which turns on the whole system. So if I press different buttons, like I want to take up the degrees, so it's a different level or amount of energy that I'm sending out? That's exactly right. It's still an infrared signal, but it's an infrared signal with either a smaller wavelength. But infrared is the is a spectrum, really, and within that spectrum, you can have very different variables or... Uh, or numbers, and that's how you can control and have different messages passing through, just like radio, where you you have the FM frequency, but within FM you have many many different channels and and frequencies. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, that's actually if you guys ever bought uh, or ever used a universal remote, the only reason a universal remote ever works is because it's programmed to uh, basically put out certain infrared signals that are already recognized by the device you're trying to control. So that's how any of these, that's how all of our technology today works. It's that we understand the fact that uh, first we understood the ideas behind classical electrodynamics where light itself is a spectrum. And then we understood the fact that it is a spectrum. Uh, it's, a, it's a spectrum of waves, yes, but it is also a spectrum of particles. And that was the most important part. It's a spectrum of particles that can interact with matter around us. And when that interaction occurs, we have the transfer of energy from one, i.e. light, photons, to electrons. And this can then start up a whole process and start up all of this technological or technological advancements that we have today. So if I, let's say I had a device with a knob that the knob can take up and down the amounts of energy I'm sending out. This device has a, a let's say, infrared a spectrum of a light that it can send out. In my mind, it seems that I could hack into any any machine that works on, in that spectrum if I could just slowly pick up the knob until something hits. Is that some like would that work, or is it just theoretical, or did I not get it correctly? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So, all right. So the thing is that in theory, if nothing was protected through uh, certain computer programs, i.e. like firewalls or um, password protections or any any of these different uh, different defense bases or bases, then in theory, yes, you could. But, you know, we're, we're always concerned about someone hacking into our systems and uh, ruining everything. So uh, that said, it's not possible nowadays. Also, uh, not to, uh, also I have to mention that um, these signals or infrared signals, which a majority of our technology works on, uh, well, sorry, not a majority of our technology, but in, in terms of uh, technology that can be controlled by, uh, by remotes or by a, a device you theorize, infrared light can only travel it can only travel, so it can travel as far as it like, but it cannot penetrate every uh, every surface or whatnot. What I mean by that is that if you were to, let's say, if you had your AC, your AC is in here in your house, and you were outside, and you tried to press the remote, and you'd be like, why is I not turning it on? The reason why is because concrete stops this uh this electromagnetic wave um it's not able to penetrate through certain materials uh and that's the reason why that this um uh, this uh this device you propose wouldn't wouldn't work in today's technology maybe when like you were first starting out and well not not even then because uh again like certain certain uh, spectrums of light or certain frequencies of light can only penetrate uh, so far. And yeah, but if I stood right in front of that device, okay, that's a whole other story. <laughs> like, if you were standing right in front of the device and you had your own little uh, machine or whatever it is um, to mess with it, then sure, you could turn it on and mess with the settings and do all that. You're technically not. In the most broad of definitions, you can say you're hacking it, but it's not really hacking, but more taking control of it and uh syncing with it syncing with it sure yeah exactly um you know manipulating whether it's on or off and like what the settings are and all that you could do that uh good luck getting past security <laughs> like uh, this is merely theoretical guys i'm not planning on hacking into any infrared device uh so let's let's jump back to quantum fields i just like to propose that uh we do not propose or we do not endorse crime unless they're cool crimes, but otherwise don't do crime, guys. <laughs> yeah, don't crime. Don't crime and stop crime. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> now... Do cry, we encourage crying. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, so now, like, we understand why this whole theory of quantum electrodynamics was so important. You know, it's it's the cornerstone, it's the basis of everything we have today. If we didn't have, if we didn't understand the physics behind it, we would not be living in such a cool world that we have, or technologically cool world that we have today. So, now that we have an idea of like what classical dynamics or classical electrodynamics is, and now what quantum electrodynamics is, I want to talk about the more overall theme of these fields. Hold on, the re- what makes quantum 
is the fact that we have the photons added to the wavelength of light and the photons are quantum because they carry out possibilities in them or like uh, I, I still don't don't fully understand why it's defined as quantum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, okay, yeah. So this is super important, guys. Um, so what quantum is, it's, uh, it's essentially the elongated term to describe the physics of quanta. Quanta simply are pieces of information that can be given certain values and these pieces of information are indivisible. What I mean by that is that you cannot you cannot zoom in further into it and find something even smaller. These are the smallest pieces of information that basically are the smallest pieces of our universe. Uh, we will call particles, subatomic particles. And these subatomic particles transfer information from one point to another. That's essentially what quantum is. It's describing the fact that the universe itself is made of very small pieces, and these pieces are the smallest that ever exist. They're quantized. All I mean by quantized is you're given a quantity or a value to a piece of uh, matter itself. And then these uh, pieces of matter or these quantized particles are governed by the idea is that they can both be waves and particles at the same time. This is actually what's called wave-particle duality. So wave-particle duality is a cornerstone of quantum mechanics or quantum theory. It describes that the most fundamental particles of our universe exist as both waves and particles. It is only until a observation is made or an external stimuli enters the environment. It's only until then that these uh, this wave or particle becomes either a wave or a particle. Just like how we were talking about in quantum entanglement, where it's not until the observation or an external stimuli affects the system, which then causes the electrons to either become uh rotate counterclockwise or rotate clockwise or when we were talking about the photons for them to have a positive polarization or a negative polarization um these are the ideas of what quantum is it's the fact that our universe itself runs off of pure probabilistic nature and this pure probabilistic nature dictates whether particles are particles or whether they're waves and so that's that's essentially what the entire uh, idea of quantum electrodynamics is. It's that, depending on the experiment done, photons or light waves are either waves or photons, particles, depending on what is uh, what is required of them or what experiment is being done, depending on the probability that is calculated, and then the probability of the events that actually becomes reality itself. So th does that make more sense about what quantum really is? Yeah, in general, quantum and here in electrodynamics, it's a, it has to do with whether it's a wave or a, a particle. And the fact that it's either until the, an observation is being made, that's what makes it quantum. 
the fact that it can withhold both options or possibilities within. It's not existing in this state of superposition. Uh, this idea that our universe itself is purely made off of probabilistic nature. So that's pretty much what quantum is. It's that our universe is pure probability. And it's not until a certain observation or a certain experiment is done that turns it from probability into actuality. And so, yeah, that, that's basically where that's basically what the difference is between classical, where it's all definite. It was, uh, you know, sure, we had particles still because we had electrons and we had light waves. But in the ideas of quantum mechanics, it was actually that electrons can also be waves and they're also particles. Um, and then it also brought about the ideas that oh, uh, light is both waves and particles. So this theory of quantum electrodynamics is under the, under the umbrella of a more generalized uh, theory. This is called quantum field theory. Now, you may be asking yourself, what the hell is that? <laughs> and so... Uh, basically, we have we have electric fields, we have magnetic fields, we have the electromagnetic fields because we we figured out in uh, classical electrodynamics that both uh, electric and magnetic fields are uh, one and the same. Magnetic fields are simply electric fields that are moving. So, simply, <laughs> you know. Not, not easy, easy, it's just uh, brushing your teeth, guys. <laughs> nah. Um, so we figured that out. And so uh, electromagnetic fields, gravitational fields, as we're all familiar with, gravity. Um, then we also have these other two fields that not too many people are familiar with. They're called the weak field and the strong field. And then we also have the Higgs field, which deals in the matter of... Uh, giving all things in the universe mass. But that's a whole other field we'll get to eventually. So before I talk, or before we get into, or we're not going to get into it this episode, but we will start talking about the weak field, the strong field, and then we're going to get to the gravitational field. And those are, and that's, that's when we're really going to start moving. But, um, but yeah, so all, you know, these fields, electrodynamics, gravity, weak, strong, they all fall under the term of quantum field theories. Quantum field theories are simply uh, taking this idea of these different fields and quantizing them. Uh, exactly as I was saying earlier, giving these uh, specific fields quanta, uh, quanta of space and quanta of time. Um, and so now what's existing is that we're saying that uh, Particles are simply excitations of these quantum fields. Now, I know that might sound a little bit weird. Um, so what an excitation is, it's just an ex excited state or a state in which uh, energy is increased. So when energy is increased in a specific point of space-time, uh, we'll start with, quantum electrodynamics so we'll start with a quantum electrodynamic field um when energy is increased at one point in space-time the quantum electrodynamic field will respond by 
popping out a particle. This particle is, is what we will know as either a photon or an electron. And so basically it's like... It's a probability field. I'm, I imagine popcorn being made that it pops and you don't know where it's going to pop, whether it's going to become a photon or an electron. Like, that was a great analogy. I was, my mind was like blank for a second. Yes. So um, basically like it's, it's like popcorn. Um, you don't know where it's going to pop out unless you understand the quantum uh, mechanical theories that explain it. Now, that's why we even have all of these equations. They describe the probability of where something is going to be and when something is going to be. And so that's, uh, that's, basically, what, or that's basically the ideas behind quantum field theories. It's that these particles, they all exist through excitations of the fields that permeate or exist in the entire universe. Uh, similar to how we consider space, the entire universe, you know, exists everywhere. These fields also exist everywhere throughout space and time. And so now we have this idea that these fields rely or these fields work upon the principles of quantum mechanics. And so we call them quantum fields. So if I take a really, really strong and smart AI and I teach it all the quantum equations, in theory, it will be able to predict any happening in the external world because it's all probabilistic. Because uh, it's all probabilistic, and it all follows the same principles and equation. Uh, oh man, um, <laughs> that's a good question. So, yeah, honestly, no. The reason why I say that is because. In order for an AI to do something that complex, it would need an extreme amount of computational power. So in theory, if you were if you were to upload the most advanced AI that doesn't even exist at this point in time, um, so let's say, I don't know, 20 years or 30 years from now, um, and even that's a stretch. So if you uploaded this if you uploaded this ai to a fully realized quantum computer what i mean by that is a quantum computer that works perfectly um and has like as many uh bits or in this case quid bits as a classical computer or even possibly it would need to be the equivalent of a supercomputer so like a quantum supercomputer then in theory it could maybe. This is like, this is really, really, this is really theoretical. And this is really hypothetical. Yeah, but um, uh, we're talking about hypothesis here. And if if you say everything is probabilistic, and I, I know that, uh, I don't know, but I assume that by today we don't have all the equations and we don't know everything about quantum physics. But once, once we, like, let's say in 20, 50 years, we'll figure out some more, not everything, and we will have stronger computers and AIs that can compute and both discover new equations of quantum physics and also compute them, then 
I imagine a world where the AIs will be able to predict what you and I and the world around us and the weather will do and be and, you know, because it's just other expressions of energy in, in reality. Own man. This is like, this is giving me like minority report. If you guys have ever seen that movie, it's a really good movie. Um, where basically they have a computer system that can predict future crimes. Mm. Um, so, all right. In, in like, if we're getting all sci-fi right now or sci-fi to the point where it could be eventually a possibility, but I, I would say not, not at least for maybe a century. Um, possibly it is possible that uh, an advanced enough AI uploaded to a quantum supercomputer could potentially predict each event that would unfold in a universe. The reason I say that is actually, it kind of brings us back to my interpretation of, uh, or the interpretation that I left you guys with in our last episode of, you know, do you make your own choices or were they always going to be made? That comes down to the ideas of does our universe follow a structured plan due to the, due to the fact that it is purely a probabilistic, uh, probabilistic world, a probabilistic universe, one that, sure, certain events were always going to occur because based off of the initial conditions and based off the, or, yeah, based off the initial conditions of our universe, they were always going to occur. You know, these, this is the path that was going to always be taken. And so, so yes, in theory, or in the broadest sense of the word theory, it could be possible that an advanced enough AI with the parameters I described could predict every event that would ever occur in our universe, which is kind of, kind of creepy to think about, but cool at the same time. Yeah. And and mostly theoretical and very very far very far yeah um we'd all be dead by then so takes all us in that guys or not or not this is like uh, Schrodinger's cat we talked about we might be dead or we might be alive we don't know the probability maybe we'll invent something that will make us live for a longer time or maybe upload our minds into computers <laughs> and we can become quantum ourselves okay you raise a good point true. You know, medical science advances every single day. And again, our understanding of the universe itself also advances every day. So, sure, maybe maybe some of us will be alive. Who knows? But regardless of the fact, it, it also, you know, it brings up the ideas of, you know, our, our, why did we even, why do we even pursue these ideas of our universe being probabilistic when we experience everything as as definite, you know, I, I woke up this morning, I walked, these were things that definitely happened. You know, it brings up the fact of, you know, we search for a deeper meaning of our, or a deeper level of our universe after we establish these, uh, these, these principles of electrodynamics and Newton's gravity and all that. And, you know, we searched for a deeper meaning one, because we knew that there was uh, paradoxes or we knew that there was inconsistencies with prior theories. Uh, for example, with um, with classical electrodynamics, with the theory that James Clark Maxwell figured out, 
1878. He, the theory actually told us about how fast light travels in a vacuum, the vacuum of space. This value directly contradicted Newton's theories about absolute space and absolute time. What I mean by absolute space and absolute time is that each piece of the universe uh, always exists or always has existed. And it's not a relative standing or a relative idea. Then Einstein came along and was like, hold up, guys, this isn't right. The, the way the universe works is that it's a relative, uh, relative standing or a relative um, perception. We, for example, if light were to move at, uh, at a faster speed, when it went, uh, like it, when it slung or slingshotted around a gravitational source like planet, then that would violate the ideas of all of electrodynamics, which is a, a big problem because if it violates all of electrodynamics, then that would tell us what we observe is false, which is absolutely not true. This is how we, this is actually one of the ways in which we build up theories. We do everything through where we do a lot of things through observation. And so we kept observing the fact that no matter what we did, no matter how we tried to increase the energy of light, it never sped up. It never had a faster velocity. It always stayed constant. And so in order for this to be reconciled, Einstein had to figure out, Einstein figured out that no matter what, things are always relative. Space-time itself is a relative standing or a relative constant. And so this basically showed us that our physics was incomplete. And then afterwards, Einstein's theories ended up, or uh, the consequences of Einstein's theories ended up telling us that his theories are incomplete as well. But rather, space is not relative, or space is relative to a point. But when we dive deeper and we dig deeper into the very structure of our universe, it is actually quantum. It is all probabilistic. I wonder how we're going to look at it if we listen to this podcast in 10 years and there's going to be some new breakthroughs, 10, 20 years. And then maybe maybe this whole will be incomplete or leading towards a, a better truth, you know, because science and observation, they keep on changing and we keep on getting new ideas of reality and new concepts that change the way we perceive things. And that's super fascinating for me because Right now, this is amazing. This is mind-blowing, thinking of the world as a quantum and how everything uh, is in relation or relativity to, to the user or to the viewer, whoever, and how probability exists all around us in all matters of life. But maybe, I don't know, so all scientists out there, maybe there's going to be another one or a hundred or a million breakthroughs they will teach us otherwise or something more deeper. And this is just, you know, being still being on the surface of things. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I, I hope to be, or I plan on being one of the people that are making these breakthroughs. Uh, as you guys may know, I'm pursuing my PhD in quantum gravity uh, starting next year. And, you know, it, it's, it's the very ideas of there's more to, what we experience. There's more to what the universe really is that drives me. And I hope it drives all of you too. It's the fact that 
there's always a new thing to learn. There's always a new thing to understand. And as long as we keep this scientific curiosity and we keep this passion for digging deeper, we're going to do fine as a society and fine as a species. Thank you so much for that. Uh, super fascinating. I invite all you guys, including me and Duitan, to dig deeper, look for answers, look for something new to learn and expand your minds. Again, if you have any questions or any comments or you found anything that we said that's not 100% accurate, please let us know. We're really looking for the feedback. And until the next episode, we had a great pleasure today. Yeah. Um, I just want to leave you guys with one thought. If you were in the shoes of one of these great physicists and you had realized or someone else had realized that, hey, there's something wrong with your theory, how would you take it? Would you be excited to know that even though you, you thought it was right, there's still something new to understand, something new to learn, or would you be devastated by the facts? This would kind of, I hope the answer that you find will bring you solace in the fact that even though if you're wrong in a sense, you're still part of the process in finding what is right. You know, you're, you're in the process of helping create more and understand more so that we as a species become more. And I just want to wish you guys a great night or a great day, wherever you are. And uh, until next time, have a great one.